This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. When you are a coach, you're often confronted with key and crucial decisions that could change the course of a game or maybe even a season. Most times, those decisions are made in the heat of the moment and is followed by scrutiny, analysis, and a lot of second guessing. Yet there was one decision that was made on the night of January the 2nd, 1984 by a Hall of Fame college football coach that 40 years later is still talked about, debated, and second-guessed. Hello, I'm Dana Augusta, your host of Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, the sports history podcast you didn't know you needed. In this all-new episode, we will talk about the 1984 Orange Bowl between the top-ranked University of Nebraska Cornhuskers and the fourth-ranked Miami Hurricanes and the decision made by Nebraska head coach Tom Osborne to go for two rather than just take the tie, which ultimately cost the Huskers a national championship. Also in this episode, we will talk about two transcendent head coaches that have had their respective teams since 1990s. Both have seen better days as their teams are in unfamiliar settings. Last place. And speaking of losing, the Detroit Pistons, once the bad boys of the NBA, and that league's most intimidating franchise has become a shell of itself and have placed itself in rather dubious company. The Pistons finally defeated the Toronto Raptors, ending the longest losing streak in North American pro sports history. And we'll take a look at other incredibly long losing streaks, including one that dates back to the 19th century by a team that no longer exists. And to conclude the show, we will send a shout out to the Chargers Lone Championship. As members of the American Football League, the then San Diego Chargers were a league power in its early years. The apex of that power came on January 4, 1964, when they won its only league title in dominating fashion. So dominating, in fact, Sports writers speculated, could they have beaten the NFL champions that year? All of that coming up on this new and improved edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. 
To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. You are listening to the Sports History Podcast that you didn't know you needed. Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, the podcast that places a historical twist on today's sports headlines. And just a reminder, if you happen to like what you hear here and you would like to hear more, please do not hesitate to like and subscribe to the podcast. Also, you could drop us a line here at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter X at HistoricallySP2. It seems like at the end of every big game, a game where championships are up for grabs and historic legacies are cemented, there's always that one play, or in this case, one decision that is second-guessed and analyzed and talked about afterwards for years. Once again, in this case, it's talked about and rehashed decades later. Four decades to be exact. The date was January 2nd, 1984 in the 50th Orange Bowl in Miami. The matchup in the golden anniversary of the game for King Orange was the top-ranked University of Nebraska Cornhuskers facing the hometown Miami Hurricanes with the national championship at stake. The situation was simple. Nebraska, number one in the AP poll, just had to win or tie the Canes, and they would be national champs for the first time since winning back-to-back national championships in 1970 and 71. The Huskers, led by head coach Tom Osborne, came into the game, their third consecutive Orange Bowl appearance, undefeated at 12-0, and was paced offensively by what was known as the Triplets. All-American quarterback Turner Gill, who finished third in the Heisman voting that year, flanker back Irving Fryer, and running back and that year's Heisman Trophy winner Mike Rogier. Adding to this offensive juggernaut was one of the best collegiate offensive lines of all time. Anchored by Mark, anchored by center Mark Trinowitz, the Huskers offensive line also featured Outland Trophy and Lombardi Award winner Dean Steinkuhler and tight end Monty Engelbritson. Facing the Huskers in this golden anniversary of the Orange Bowl Classic was the University of Miami. Despite playing the game in its home stadium, the Orange Bowl, the Canes were 10.5 point underdogs to the champions from the Big 8 Conference. Miami, led by redshirt freshman quarterback Bernie Kozar, and with running backs Alonzo Highsmith and Albert Bentley, and receivers Stanley Shakespeare and Eddie Brown. Miami was coached by Howard Schnellenberger, who came into the game with a 10-1 record. Their loss that year was in 1983 regular season was a 28-3 defeat at the hands of their in-state rival Florida in Gainesville. Now, despite having a 10-1 record, they entered the game as the fifth-ranked team in the country. By the time of kickoff, the Canes, with the win, could be voted national champions because of what happened earlier that day. In the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Georgia had upset number two Texas 10 to nine. 
over in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, unranked UCLA, trounced fourth-ranked Illinois, 45-9, and in the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans, Auburn, number three, defeated Michigan in a very unimpressive 9-7 win thanks to three Al Del Greco field goals in the second half. So it was all set with this de facto winner-take-all national championship game. The first quarter in this 50th anniversary Orange Bowl game belonged to the Hurricanes. After a blocked field goal attempt by Nebraska, Miami took full advantage, scoring 17 points in the opening stanza with a pair of Kozar touchdown passes to tight end Glenn Dennison and a field goal by Jeff Davis. The momentum of the game would, sw would swing to Nebraska's side in the second quarter. After a long offensive series, Nebraska would get on the board in a very unconventional way. Facing third down and five from the Miami 19, Gill took the snap from center and dropped, on, dropped it on the ground on purpose. Right guard Dean Steinkuehler picked up the loose ball, ran around the left side of the Nebraska line, and rumbled 19 yards for the score. Known forever as the Fumble Ruski, Nebraska finally got on the scoreboard, making the score 17-7. Now, right before halftime, Gill would lead the Huskers on another long drive and would score on a one-yard touchdown run cutting into the Canes lead 17-14 and both teams went into halftime. In the third quarter, Miami's offense came back to life. After the Nebraska field goal tied the game at 17-all, Bernie Kozar would lead the Hurricanes on a pair of touchdown drives. Alonzo Highsmith and Albert Bentley would score touchdowns to extend the Canes lead to 31-17 heading into the fourth. The Huskers now behind by 14, faced an uphill battle which was made even more difficult as Heisman Trophy winning running back Mike Rougier was knocked out of the game. Yet Turner Gill, Irving Fryer, and Rougier's replacement running back Jeff Smith mounted a comeback for the Huskers. Midway through the fourth quarter, Nebraska would score on a two-yard plunge by Jeff Smith, cutting the Hurricanes lead to 31-24. After a Miami punt, Nebraska would drive to the Miami 24-yard line with about a minute to play. Facing a second down and eight, Gill dropped back to pass and found a streaking Irving Fryer wide open in the end zone and Fryer dropped the pass. After, after Turner Gill incompletion on third down, Nebraska was faced with fourth down and eight from the Miami 24. With the clock running, Osborne called an option play. Gill took the snap and ran around, ran right, and as he was being brought down by the Hurricanes, the Gill pitched at the last minute to a sprinting Jeff Smith, and he did the rest, outrunning the Miami defense to the end zone for a touchdown with 48 seconds remaining. Now, Coach Osborne was faced with the decision. He could go for the conventional PAT, which would have tied the game at 31 apiece. And since college football had no overtime in 1984, if Miami wouldn't score in regulation, the game would have ended in a 31-31 tie and Nebraska would have been voted national champs. But instead of going for the extra point, Osborne instructed his offense to go back on the field and go for two. From the two-yard line, Osborne called a rollout pass. 
Gill rolled out to the right and fired a pass to Jeff Smith, who scored on who scored the two four-quarter touchdowns to tie the score. However, a great defensive play by Kane's defensive back Kenny Calhoun broke up the pass, forcing the incompletion, and Miami had the game and its first national championship. At the end of the game, Tom Osborne was, was asked about his decision to go for two. His response was, quote, we were trying to win. I don't think you go for a tie in that case. You try to win the game. We wanted an undefeated season and a clear-cut national championship, unquote. Actually, Osborne was asked that very same question earlier in the week, heading into the game if he would ever consider going for two in such a situation. Osborne replied, quote, I sure hope it doesn't come up. I'll be crucified one way or another on that one. I don't think our players would be satisfied backing into it with an extra point. I don't think that's the way to do it." Unquote. Some 40 years have passed since that thriller in Miami in Little Havana. It is still talked about and continues to be one of the most hotly debated decisions in the history of college football. Now, if you was in that situation, with the national championship on the line, and you were in Coach Osborne's shoes, what would you have done? That's what I thought. Speaking of transcendent coaches, currently the San Antonio Spurs and the New England Patriots are having seasons that they and their fans want to forget. Both teams are struggling to say the least. As of this recording, the Spurs are 5-28, the worst record in the Western Conference. Meanwhile, the New England Patriots are last in the AFC East with a 4-12 record. Places where these two proud and highly successful franchises are not used to being, let alone their coaches. Greg Popovich and Bill Belichick over the last quarter century have been two of the most successful coaches in all of North American sports. Combined, both coaches have won 11 championships, Pop with five with the Spurs and Belichick with six with the Patriots. Yet with the current state of both teams, that seems like a thousand years ago. Yet Popovich and Belichick will be forever linked to their team's most successful runs in the history of their organizations. When you think of the San Antonio Spurs, you think of the button-down, business-like approach to their teams. Never too high when they win, never deflated when they lose. And that didn't happen all that often. The Spurs, despite their on-court struggles this year, still have the highest winning percentage of all active NBA franchises and the second best winning percentage of all teams in the four major sports. During Popovich's era, the Spurs reached the postseason 22 consecutive seasons and won 50 games each year from 2000 to 2017. Popovich replaced Bob Hill as head coach 18 games into the 1996-97 season. Then at the end of the year, after winning the NBA draft lottery, they, sele they selected a quiet big man out of, West out of Wake Forest University named Tim Duncan. And as they say, the rest is history. 
Teaming up with veterans David Robinson, Sean Elliott, and Avery Johnson, the Spurs became the first team with roots in the ABA to win an NBA title, beating Patrick Ewing, Larry Johnson, and the New York Knicks in five games in 1999. From there, the Spurs surrounded their big man with players such as Bruce Bowen, and Tony Parker, and Mano Ginobili, and what I call the NBA's invisible dynasty was created. After their title run in 1999, the Spurs won crowns in 2003, 2005, 2007, and in 2014. And through it all was Greg Popovich, famously short with sideline reporters and his caustic sense of humor. His contemporary in New England was also famous for his aloof relationship with the media. Bill Belichick, whose press conferences were as exciting as watching paint dry, was still as a diabolical football genius wearing cut-off hoodies on the sidelines. He replaced Pete Carroll as head coach of the Patriots in 1999. Yes, that Pete Carroll, who is now the head man in Seattle. People sort of, sort of forget that when Belichick took over as head coach of the Patriots, they were not that far removed from being in a Super Bowl. Losing to, Green Bay, losing to the Green Bay Packers in, in Super Bowl 31 just a few years earlier. In his second season as head coach, he started a young quarterback from Michigan that replaced an injured Drew Bledsoe. His name, Tom Brady. Perhaps you've heard of him. From that point on, the Brady-Belichick tandem became the most successful coach-quarterback combination in the history of the league. During that time, known fittingly as the Brady-Belichick era, the Patriots recorded 37 postseason wins, 19 consecutive winning seasons, a 638 winning percentage in the playoffs, 17 division titles which included 11 in a row from 2009 to, from 2009 to 2019 with 13 AFC title game appearances. Now that's some resume. Oh yeah, I forgot. They also have the only undefeated season in its NFL 17 game season. I wonder why I forgot about that. Anyway, now by the time you hear this, it is indeed possible that Belichick could have coached his final game with the Patriots as we are heading into the final weekend of the NFL regular season as I'm writing this. It is, if it is, it will mark the end of a great era of football in New England. And it also could be the final year of Popovich in San Antonio. For that, only time will tell. Yet in either case, like the famous Frank Sinatra song I did in my way, they, it could have it could have been very well written about these two legendary coaches and their intriguing personalities. On the night of December 30th, something happened in the NBA that hadn't happened since October the 28th. Let me refresh your memory. It was a Saturday night, two days before Halloween. Know what it is? Alright, alright, I'll tell you. The Detroit Pistons won a basketball game. It was two months and two days between victories for one of the most important franchises in the NBA. The Pistons, once one of the most intimidating teams in the NBA during the 80s and 90s, have fallen and they have fallen hard. During these, those two months and two days, 
the Pistons lost 28 consecutive games. Not only the, the longest losing streak in NBA history, but also the longest losing streak in pro sports history. The NBA record was held by both the 2011 Cleveland Cavaliers, year 1 AL after LeBron, and 2013-2014 the Trust the Process Philadelphia 76ers. That was 26 straight. But with their 129-127 win over the Toronto Raptors, their losing streak mercifully ended at 28 straight, the longest in the history of pro sports on this continent. Breaking the 26 in a row for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the record holder in the NFL, which lasted between two seasons, 1976 and 77, which was Tampa Bay's 21st 26 games in the history of the franchise. And of course, in October of 77, they lost. They won their first game against, of all teams, the New Orleans Saints. My grandpa's still turning over in his grave for that one. Two teams hold the record for the longest losing streak in the NHL, which is 18 in a row by the 2003-2004 Pittsburgh Penguins and the 2020-2021 Buffalo Sabres. Yet to me, the most intriguing and most interesting is the 26 losses in a row in Major League Baseball and is by a team that no longer exists. The Louisville Colonels of 1889 finished the regular season with a record of 27-1-11 and 2. Yes, two ties. I guess because of darkness or something. Scoring just above four runs a game. Their ace, John Ewing, lost 30 games that year. That's right. He lost 30 games. During that stretch, that year's Colonels lost a major league record 26 straight games, that season becoming the first team in Major League Baseball history to lose 100 games in a season. So what happened to the Louisville Colonels? Well, the team disbanded at the end of the 1899 season, and here's a postscript. At the end of that 1899 season, team owner Barney Dreyfus had bought controlling interest of a struggling team in the National League called the Pittsburgh Pirates. He brought several players from the Colonels to the Pirates to boot the beef of their roster, including Hall of Famers Fred Clark and a young bow-legged shortstop named Honus Wagner. We conclude this episode with a shout-out. And since the NFL season is almost over, it has not been the best of seasons for my Los Angeles Chargers. Yet 60 years ago, almost to the day, it was the climax of their greatest season, blowing out the Patriots in the 1963 AFL Championship game. We'll send a shout-out to the only Chargers team to ever win a league championship. And at the time of their dominating win over Boston, there was a question that was asked in the sports world. Were the Chargers better than that year's NFL champion Chicago Bears? Could the San Diego Chargers, members of the American Football League, a.k.a. the Foolish Club, could they have defeated the mighty Bears of George Hallis in the Super Bowl if it was played in January of 1964. More on that after this.
At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. And welcome back. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. To finish off this episode of the podcast, we usually send a shout out to a former player or historic event or team that I am reminded of when something happens in the sports world that sports fans, I feel, need to be reminded of. This year was not the best of years for my L.A. Chargers. As we're recording this, we're heading into the final game of this regular season, where as a fan, I had such high hopes. But with the slow start at the beginning of the year and the finger injuries of Justin Herbert and the devastating loss to the Raiders and the subsequent firing of head coach Brandon Staley and general manager Tom Telesco, we have seen better days. Yet despite having such high hopes for this season, we're heading into a new direction with a new coach, whoever that may be. When August comes around again, my hopes will be renewed as my Chargers will continue to pursue that elusive Super Bowl win. The Chargers were also looking for better days as they were entering the 1963 AFL season. After playing in the first two AFL title games, the San Diego Chargers limped through the 1962 season with a 4-10 record, their worst mark in their three seasons as members of the new American Football League. So, Hall of Fame head coach Sid Gilman decided to move the team's training camp to Boulevard, California, in the high desert just north of Death Valley at a failed dude ranch called Rough Acres. For a little over a month, the Chargers trained in preparation for the 1963 regular season in a place where they battled heat, rattlesnakes, tarantulas, and sheer boredom to, re- to rebound from their, for- their poor performance the year before. As it turned out, this was the start of the team's most successful season ever, even to this day. That year, the Chargers were led by veteran quarterback Tobin Rode. 
who had led the Detroit Lions to an NFL championship in 1957 and went 11-3 in the regular season that year, outpacing divisional rival Oakland led by first-year head coach Al Davis by one game to advance to their third AFL title in, title in four seasons. The Chargers had one of the most potent offenses in pro football history. With the passing influence of Gilman as the head coach and veteran experience of rote passing, the Chargers were an offensive force to be reckoned with that included running backs Paul Lowe and Keith Lincoln, tight end Dave Kusurik, and Hall of Fame wide receiver Lance Allworth. Lowe paced the Chargers in rushing, gaining 1,010 yards and 8 touchdowns in the season. Just as important as their defense with the Chargers, just supposed as their offense, was the Chargers defense, led by all pros Earl Faison, Ernie Ladd, and Chuck Allen. Cornerback Dick Harris led the team with eight interceptions on the season, while added Allen added five of his own. Coordinating the defense was a young defensive-minded former player by the name of Chuck Knoll. Maybe you've heard of him. On January 5, 1964, the San Diego Chargers, playing in San Diego's Balboa Stadium, faced off against the Boston Patriots, champions of the Eastern Division in their first ever appearance in the AFC Championship game. It was the third appearance in four years for San Diego. In 1960 and 61, San Diego lost to Houston in the first two AFL Championship games behind the play of George Blanda, Billy Cannon, and Charlie Hennigan. The game was originally scheduled for December 28th of 1963, the same day as the NFL title game. But with the title game pushed back because of the AFL postponed all of their games that were scheduled for November 24th of that year because of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Now while the Chargers were known primarily by his offense, the Patriots were a formidable defensive unit based squad led by defensive lineman Larry Eisenhower and Hall of Fame linebacker Nick Bonacanti. It was essentially the irresistible force against the immovable object. On that sunny, sun, on that sunny January afternoon in San Diego, one player stood out. Every now and then a player would get into what is called the zone. On that afternoon, it was Chargers fullback Keith Lincoln. Lincoln exploded out to a 56-yard run from scrimmage the first time he's touched the ball, which was on the second play of the game, and for all intents and purposes, the route was on. The Chargers led 21-7 at the end of the first quarter, and they never looked back. Lincoln's 205 yards rushing contributed to, contributed to the 329 all-purpose yards he had that afternoon as the Chargers destroyed the AFL's number one ranked defense 51-10 for the Chargers' first and only league championship. In all, the Chargers gained 610 yards of total offense, finding the end zone seven times. After the game, there was talk albeit speculation, of one question. If there was a Super Bowl in January of 1964, would the Chargers have beaten the newly crowned NFL champion Chicago Bears in an interleague championship game of some sort? Now, the Chargers were the, had the, sec, the top-ranked offense in the league, averaging slightly less than 30 points a game, while allowing the AFL second best with 18 points per game 
and averaging 368 yards of offense per game. Meanwhile, in the NFL, the Bears, coached by George Hallis, with a myriad of Hall of Famers like Mike Ditka, Doug Atkins, they were 10th in offense, averaging just 298 yards of offense per game, but they were the NFL's best defensive unit, allowing just 10 points a game. Now imagine this, imagine the weapons the Chargers had with Paul Lowe, Lance Allworth, Keith Lincoln, Dave Kusurik, and quarterback Tobin Rogue, and backup quarterback John Hadle against the Bears defense with the likes of Doug Atkins and Joe Fortunato, Richie Pettibone, and Rosie Taylor. Can you imagine that matchup? Great matchup make great battles and great matchups make great fights. This would have been tremendously, tremendously interesting. You talk about the irresistible force against the immovable object? And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast coming to you from the Bill King Memorial Studio in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises located in suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. To get more content of Historically Speaking Sports, you can check us out on Twitter X at HistoricallySP2 or you could also send us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if, you, and if you have not done so already, please, please subscribe to the show. It'll help us out a lot. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Hell, tell a passerby on the street about us if you think they like sports history. And until next time and the next episode, stay blessed, stay cool, and be your best in everything that you do. Peace.